The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Upon this rock, let us build our church, said the lions of the Colosseum. And as the Christians wander in, we can lock the doors and eat them. Drink the blood of the saints, roll the poor for pocket change, and then on our knees we will give thanks, said the lions of the Colosseum. This is from a song that our musical guest Pierce Pettis wrote Back in, what was this, 93? Chase the Buffalo. This is a, uh, it's a great, great album. He had, uh, uh, he had what, uh, David Hidalgo from Los Lobos play on that one? Um, uh, it, it's this, uh, and, and it's this really clever thing that, that Pierce does with this, with this song where he, he likens corrupt religious leaders to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome that the Christians would get thrown to under the leadership of particularly nasty Caesars. He goes on to say that on the satellite TV, every day you see them live from the lap of luxury. It's the lions of the Colosseum. With politicians and millionaires, you won't see Mother Teresa there. Just the holy rollers with the manes of hair, lions of the Colosseum. Of course, you wouldn't see Mother Teresa there now because she's dead, but when he wrote this, she was still around. You know, I, I don't get a whole lot of opportunities to thank and to praise people like Pierce who have been such an influence to me. I've been listening to this guy's music for, gosh, 30 years now almost, and it's been, uh, it's been a privilege to, to be able to have him play for us. He, he uh, came last night. Many of you enjoyed uh, his concert, and, uh, and I got to hear him again this morning kind of unexpectedly. I've uh, I don't know if you have this. My phone sometimes get in, gets in a mood um, where when I turn it on, it wants to play something in particular. And for the last week or so, it's been wanting to play James Brown. I'm not clear why it wants to do this, but it seems to. And so finally this morning, I'm like, okay, fine. We'll listen to James Brown on the way to church. But it turns out it was on shuffle. So after James Brown, it wanted to play something from Handel's Messiah. And then it wanted to play a Hendrix tune. And then another Hendrix tune from another album. And then it wanted to play one of Pierce's songs, which I thought was great. So then, then there was some Beatles, some Dylan, some Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. I, you know, my, now I only have good music on my phone, of course. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a good morning. It was a good morning to, to listen to some of Pierce's stuff and to think about this, 
this song, you know, and when we read this passage out of the gospel and when we hear this story, we're often thinking along the same kind of lines about this synagogue ruler. We had the, the same uh, situation a few, a few weeks ago when we were uh, looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan where this, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he, he says that, uh, you know, basically tr- wants to quiz him and, uh, and as we talked about, that, that lawyer was not the kind of lawyer where, you know, the lawyer and the imam and the rabbi, they're, they're traveling and their car breaks down and they find this farmhouse and the farmer says, well, you can stay here, uh, you know, but uh, my guest room only has two beds in it, so one of you is going to have to sleep in the barn. And the imam says, that's fine, I'll, I'll do that. And he, he goes out and then a couple minutes later, there's a knock on the door and he says, uh, the, there's a dog in the barn, and I can't sleep under the same roof as this unclean creature. So, uh, so the rabbi says, "That's fine. Dog is not a problem. So, you know, you, you stay here, and I'll go. I'll go out." And 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 uh, he does. And then a few minutes later, there's a knock on the door, and, and it's the rabbi, and and he says, uh, "You know, there's a pig in the barn, and I, I can't spend the night under the same roof as this unclean creature." And so the lawyer says, "That's fine. I'll go out. I'll I'll, I'll stay there." And a couple minutes later, there's a knock on the door, and it's the pig and the dog. But as we discussed, those kinds of jokes are really offensive to those in the legal profession, and, and we, we shouldn't talk like that. And, and either way, this lawyer who came to Jesus would have been an ethicist, would have been a religious teacher, an expert in Torah, not, not the kind of lawyer that, that we think of like that. Uh, but, but oftentimes, the, these guys are, are given a, a bad rap. There's a more sympathetic way to look at them, which is to say, well, these are people who take Torah seriously. They take following God's law very seriously, and so they want to, they genuinely want to know, okay, if I am supposed to love my neighbor, then help me define neighbor. And, and here, too, the, the synagogue ruler, you know, this, and when we hear synagogue ruler, basically think like senior warden. You know, this is not somebody, uh, Bill, you, uh, Bill it still instinctively pops his head up, even though he, is, he has the best title in the whole church, which is immediate past senior warden. The, the, you know, the, Bill, of course, went into that for all of the fame and glory and money, but, but most synagogue rulers, like most senior wardens, basically get, get pressed into service, and they do it faithfully, and they have to deal with a, with a whole bunch of, of headaches. And so th- this guy's just trying to maintain order in his, in his synagogue, in his assembly, and this, this guy comes in, and he starts doing these things, and, and he has received this teaching that you're supposed to work on six days and you rest on one. If you're going to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that means that you work on the six days, but on the Sabbath you don't work. And of course, it's just a few verses in Torah. So the rabbis would say, well, okay, what do you mean by work? What, what is work involved? And they'd worked out all kinds of, you know, in, in the course of their debates on this. Well, you can, you can walk, but you can't, like, walk like you're trying to get from one place to another. So, so you know, you can, you can walk to, to services, or you can take a, a leisurely stroll around, around your, your field. There's a story that uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a great uh, uh, Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, tells about the, this rabbi who, who was just taking a Sabbath afternoon walk around his field and and he noticed a spot in his fence that needed mending. And he thought, oh, I'm going to have to fix that when, when the Sabbath is over. And, and then he decided that because he had thought to fix it on the Sabbath, that he should never fix it. And stories like these, of course, are designed to illustrate something. They're apocryphal. 
because if that had really happened, he would be known not as the, the rabbi who walked around his field, but he would be known as the rabbi who kept having to buy new animals because the other ones ran away. But, but the idea is they're saying, how do we be faithful to Torah? How can we, how can we follow this command God's given us to, to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? And, and in these stories, and we get multiple stories of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, one of the things that's always struck me is just how easy it would have been for Jesus to not cause a stir, right? When you think about it, the biblical day starts at evening. It starts when the sun goes down. So by the time you're in services during the day on a Saturday, which would have been the Sabbath, you've already got half the Sabbath behind you, Right? And, and, you know, this is a, a, a part of the world that's closer to the equator than ours. So if you're at a kind of normal morning meeting time, you basically, you know, if you wait eight hours, Sabbath is going to be over. And then you can do all the things that you would do when, when there's no more Sabbath. And so it would be entirely reasonable. In fact, you could imagine somebody like Paul saying, to, saying well, you know, okay, if it's going to really cause offense to somebody, then, you know, just wait until Sabbath's over and, and heal the person then. I'm sure that it went through somebody's mind, this lady that Jesus is healing, who has been hunched over, she has been disabled for 18 years. What's another eight hours, right? But Jesus doesn't see it that way. I think we, we see three, three things about Jesus in this story. One is we see his tremendous love for this woman who has been crippled, and he is not willing to wait those eight hours to heal her. We see his power, not only in the healing of disease, but, but Luke tells us that she had, in fact, been subjected to the pernicious work of a spirit. So there was some sort of psychosomatic thing going on as well. She was not just physically disabled. She was under the oppressive force of, of some demonic spirit. And, and so when Jesus heals her, he's not just demonstrating his ability to heal disease. He's, this, is, this is one of those power encounters, or as I call them, the big Jesus smackdown moments, where he demonstrates his power over his enemies, even over this evil spirit who has been harming this woman for 18 years. Again, when Jesus says, Shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a beloved child of God, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day? He's actually kind of echoing what the synagogue ruler says. You know, shouldn't you do that kind of work on, on, a, on a work day, not on, on a Sabbath? And Jesus says, shouldn't this lady be healed? And the way the language works here, it, it, usually we... We see it translated as she straightened up, but, but literally the Greek is she was straightened up. The power involved in making this happen is given all to God in Luke's account. And the third thing we see in addition to Jesus' love and his power is the fact that he sincerely does not care about the scruples of religious authorities. He sincerely does not care what you think is appropriate. He does not care what you think would be the best timing for him to do the things that he is doing. He is 
absolutely unconcerned with how much he offends you when he does the things that he does. Now, that would be really scary if it weren't the case that he is so good and that he loves us and that we are his people. When we think about the, the psalm, which the psalmist says, and you, Lord, have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. Be my strong rock, a, a castle to keep me safe. You are my crag and my stronghold. If God is our protector against everything that is coming against us, then really the only thing we have to get over when he does things that bother us or offend us or shock us is ourselves. There's nothing about him that we have to be afraid of. The only thing we have to be afraid of or be concerned about is how willing we are to get on board with what he's doing, how willing we are to change our own plans to accommodate his Our God is, the writer of Hebrews says, a consuming fire. But he's a fire that consumes everything that comes against his purposes and comes against his people. He's a consuming fire. He shakes all nations, all of those forces which would come against his people and his purposes. And what's really neat about this whole story is the bit that comes right after. Once again, I, you know, I feel like every Sunday I get up here and I complain about the lectionary. I'm going to complain about the lectionary again. It cuts off the reading early. Because right after verse 17, after all of Jesus' opponents are humiliated and the people are delighted with the wonderful things that he's doing, Jesus therefore asked, verse 18, so what's the kingdom of God like? What am I going to compare it to? Well, it's like a mustard seed. Someone took and planted in, in his garden. It grew and it became a, a huge bush. The birds of the air perched in its branches. And again, he said, what, what am I going to compare the kingdom of God to? Well, it's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a, a huge amount of flour. I mean, enough to make bread for 150 people until it worked all through the dough. So Jesus is saying, this is not just a story about healing this woman. Although if that were all, that would be a great story about his love for this woman and his ability to conquer all those forces that oppress God's people. And it's not even just about him showing up people who are a little too concerned about the rules that they've developed because they think that they've figured out how you're supposed to do it. There's a bigger story about the way that the kingdom of God is breaking in to this world, and it happens in little ways and in little places that you can't even see. Back in the first century, when our brothers and sisters were being thrown to the lions, when they were being hung up on crosses and set ablaze to light the Roman roads, they could hardly have imagined 2,000 years later for all of its scars and all of its faults and all of the mistakes that we've made this movement they were a part of would have consistently proclaimed Christ and Him crucified. Would have told the story of the life, death, and resurrection of this Messiah, this Anointed One, that we would have established a different way 
of dealing with sick people, i.e. to actually care for them as they are sick rather than running away from them so you don't get sick. Modern hospitals are a creation of the church that we would have mobilized to eradicate slavery in most of the Western Hemisphere. Now, the last verse of Pierce's song is probably the most inspiring of the stuff that I've heard of his, and I've heard it all. He says, there's rebel graffiti on the walls inside the Colosseum. And down below in the catacombs, the defiant ones are meeting. Hiding in the underground, blood brothers pass the cup around. And they pay no heed to the roaring sound of the lions of the Colosseum. Don't you pay no heed to the roaring sound of the lions of the Colosseum. Amen.